Philosophy of Language by Willem Flosser Translated by Rodrigo Moltes Novis 2016 Translator's Note This book is a series of lectures that Flusser delivered at the Brazilian Institute of Philosophy, IBF, Sao Paulo, in 1963, and at the Institute of Technology for Aeronautics, ITA, São José dos Campos, in 1965. It was subsequently published in the ITA Journal in 1965. Originally, the series of lectures had 17 planned sessions, but was stopped, for unknown reasons, after the 10th session. However, Flusser picked up the theme in another two series of lectures, also at the Brazilian Institute of Philosophy, in 1964 and 1965 respectively, where he expanded the theme and which were titled Fundamental Concepts of Western Thought and the Influence of Existentialist Thought Today. Both are also part of this series by Univocal Publishing. Philosophy of Language Forward by Sean Cubitt So lucid is the prose of Willem Flusser and his translator Rodrigo Maltes Novis that a forward seems almost an impertinence. Some small contextual notes might perhaps help position these lectures. In 1963, Brazil was moving from a policy of intense inward investment by foreign capital to a government characterized by its proximity to the working class and traditional working class parties, including the communists. In 1964, however, there would be a military junta which would hold power for over 20 years. The country's intellectual and artistic ferment in the years immediately preceding the junta can be evoked with a handful of names, Paulo Freire, Elio Oitisica, Ligia Clark, Augusto Boal, Nelson Pereira dos Santos, Rui Guerra, Glauber Rocha. As a member of the Organizational Committee of the Sao Paulo Biennial, Flusser was in contact with the vivid art scene as well as the major intellectual currents of his adopted home. He was also blessed and cursed with what he described in an essay as the freedom of the migrant, a freedom that allows the incomer a cold analysis of their adopted home while keeping them at arm's length from it. Though constantly offering dialogue with colleagues in Sao Paulo, Flusser's major references are to Europe and to a Europe already, by 1963, just a little passé in European eyes, as when he mentions only just having come across Claude Levi-Strauss, ten years after the popular success in France of Tris Tropiques, largely about indigenous Brazilian tribes. Instead these lectures dive backwards from the existentialism of Camus and Sartre towards the phenomenological studies of Heidegger and Husserl, a trajectory he suggests was to lead deeper into the history of philosophy in the next year's lecture series. There is here evidence of a mixed condition, on the one hand, of isolation from the structuralist currents sweeping Europe at the time, and on the other a freedom from their more doctrinaire or merely fashionable domination. He was able therefore to develop a startlingly independent investigation into the linguistic turn of both continental and Anglo-Saxon traditions in the early and mid-twentieth century. As with so many of the great thinkers, it is not only what Flusser thinks but how he thinks that is of value. In elegant, 
almost language reflections, he undertakes reflection on key terms like proper name and self to bring his readers to reorient themselves to over-familiar positions concerning his central topics, meaning and truth. In the wake of Wittgenstein, Saussure and post-structuralism, the claim that language constructs reality is no longer as shocking as it was, but to have developed this thesis independently of European structuralism, and by such an original route, is one of Flusser's achievements. That would however only be of interest to historians if the originality of his argument did not bring us first to quizzing the mythic basis of the proper name, in which language expresses the unique event of its encounter with the world, his prescription of poetry as the proper elaboration of such encounters, and science as the process of converting that poetry into prose, a process in which the richness of meaning is gradually scrubbed away until nothing is left, and nothing which, however, it is our unique historical task, as moderns, to confront. This utterly inadequate, and slightly incorrect, account of Flusser's argument is intended not to preempt reading this extraordinary little book, but on the contrary, to encourage a reading of it in tune with Flusser's pedagogic circumstance. These are lectures, for students, which connect outwards to other lectures by other professors. They are in that sense centrifugal. While they articulate a very clear argument, they also operate as stimulants for other inquiries in their provocations, starting with the description of philosophy as a small talk on page 2 and in the manner of their logic. Given the premise that everything that is not linguistic is absurd, p.10, and given the caveat that not everything linguistic is meaningful, both the creativity and the responsibilities of speaking and writing become central, not only to his own thought but to the stimulation of thinking in his students. Like Adorno's The Essay as Form, originally written in the late 1950s, Flusser's lectures give pride of place to the unique moment in which world and self mutually form one another in the proper name and see only decline in the movement from the unique to the general and universal for which he reserves the term a common name. Knowledge, Flusser argues, is ontologically anterior to Noah and Known. Noah and Known are the two aspects and the two horizons of knowledge, intellect and external world are the two aspects and the two horizons of language. Self, reality, and their relation as meaning exist in and because of their co-constitution in the unique, unrepeatable event of their encounter in the plane of language, which is not the sole property of either and is therefore no more the mathematics of nature than it is the syntax of reason. If in this momentous collision of modes of being we can catch a hint of Badiou's philosophy of the event, it may suggest not only that there is a dynamic running through the Brazilian exile and the Parisian post-Maoist, but that there is also a political dynamic which remains to be released from Flusser's thinking, which has occasionally been seen as apolitical or even conservative. On the one hand, it might suggest, as critics of Badiou have done, Papadopoulos et al. 2008, that new generations should be impatient of their elders who assert that the event, on which whatever truth we have is founded, is always in the past. At the same time, Flusser points beyond Badiou's ethics of fidelity to a past event, 
and towards a more 21st century conception of mediation as the central fact of human being, mediations that in fact explode the concept of self and world by envisaging both as horizons not only of language and meaning but of the signifying flux of ecological entanglement. In this sense, although Flusser begins from phenomenology, he leads towards aesthetics. The step is a small one, phenomenology is the philosophy of experience aesthetics that of the senses, though it became in modern times the philosophy of beauty in particular and thence of art. The ancient Greeks had no word for communication. Instead poetics, rhetoric and aesthetic philosophy in their time, and into Roman classicism and medieval theology engaged with the issues we today address as communication, Peters 1999. Even though his subject is language, Flusser's approach is phenomenological at root, dealing with the sensory immersion in the world that constitutes the poetic moment that requires, as the only adequate response, a proper name, the name, we might say, of a God whose invocation is enough to call to mind the sheer otherness of a storm, a river or a mountain. Yet while he suggests such moments are foundational, he also asserts that they are continuous. In this way he reflects a major preoccupation of his contemporaries like Ricoa and Merleau-Ponty with the nonverbal aspects of human experience. Since Flusser is in many circles best known for his work on photography, it is worth suggesting here that these lectures already suggest that language may not be restricted to the verbal, but might also include the figurative arts. Contemporary phenomenologists of media like Vivian Sobchak, 2004, point towards the expansion of definitions of self required once we broach the borders of the linguistic. Perhaps because he was outside the sphere of structuralist influence, Flusser never subordinates the other media to language, and so allows the bodily movement of images, sounds, shapes and textures to approach the world in parallel with language, without language's tendency to reduce the particular to the universal, the unique to the general. The potential for wonder is constant. And why E.T. we are constantly vulnerable, as Ricoa, 1977-365, would argue a decade after Flusser, to the mismatch between lived experience and linguistic expression, in the kind of lazy metaphor that forces words to extend beyond their referent and so lose touch with that of which they were to have been the expression. Science and reason triumph over poetry to the degree that they remain more true to that initial expression, since Pythagoras first established the mathematical forms of music, because in avoiding the temptation of metaphor they retain the truth that it is Pan's flute that establishes, with its mathematical harmony, what we call reality. 109. As mathematics, music retains its proximity to that more embodied experience of the event in which world and self are generated, the event whose name is, if not that of a god like Pan, at least that of a specific moment rather than a generic one. It is only in logic and in discourse that we lose this specificity. To the extent that it retains its music, poetry is a saving grace, since what is not ours within the verse is its vibration with nothingness. This enigmatic quality of the verse is its meaning, 136. Vibration, 
the harmony of poetry and whatever is beyond the human, preserves within its otherwise linguistic form its capacity to convey the enigma of the void. And ironically, it is the loss of this enigma that creates absurdity, since the meaning of poetry is precisely what exceeds and escapes language, since everything that is wholly encompassed within language can no longer be meaningful. We can only conclude that the phenomenological body itself is external to language and therefore also within the enigma, and that the senses and the media that speak to them for that reason are not caught in the entropic decline towards absurdity. In this way Flusser helps to indicate a vital feature of the human experience that it is indeed linguistic and bonded through language to logic and reason, but that it is simultaneously married to the enigma of non-existence through the communicative capability of the body. On the one hand human experience is exclusively human to the extent that it is in a continuum with language, while on the other its communicative capability lies in its embodiment, which it shares with the rest of the world, and which thereby becomes the channel of the enigmatic coexistence of being and non-being, unity and multiplicity. The essential connection Flusser establishes between the phenomenal, human experience, and the communicative, which is also common to animals and environments, is already ecological. This is of a part with his post-Freudian understanding of the self as a fluid construct dependent on language and therefore not self-founding or isolated, but already constructed by the language which connects it to other living creatures. If however communication exceeds language to include all the senses, then those connections do not stop with human beings but extend outward to the flora and fauna, the biosphere and geology of the planet, and beyond it to the moon and sun and the longer, slower, vaster interactions of all of these with the cosmos beyond. If this seems too fantastical, consider the pages Flusser devotes here to the study of myth. Here the ground of being is non-existence. There is a huge difficulty here, because as Flusser observes, the Western tradition is entirely devoted to the pursuit of being and beings, to Leibniz's question, why is there something rather than nothing? Flusser's reply, echoing the Eastern tradition, is that there is nothing. But what is this nothing? It is what precedes language, meaning, and the objectification of objects they bring. Myth is how poetry extracts something from nothingness, somethings whose being is intrinsically mythical since they have no prior existence, yet which bear precious and unrepeatable truths of the encounter with that nothingness that precedes and encircles human being. Today, he tells us, ontology is, in the end, mythology. It is the confrontation not with being but with nothing. The mathematical philosophers since Freya and Cantor have also explored this mythic boundary of thought. Observing that, in the founding axioms of logic and ontology, everything that exists is identical to itself, A equals A, Freya defines zero as that which is not identical to itself and therefore does not exist. As the non-identical, Zero configures that universal multiplicity and instability that persists through its sheer incapacity to exist, its lack of being. Establishing a logical proof that all numbers derive from zero, 
logic demands recognition that non-identity lurks in every constructed identity, every unity is haunted by multiplicity and flux. Such, it may be, is the substantive nothing that Flusser engages. What persists without existing and lies beyond and within language and reason? What grounds and escapes human existence? In Flusser's exploration of language I believe we hear the beginnings of a 21st century analysis which holds that what escapes and grounds us simultaneously is the mediation which under other discourses we know as ecology. This is the implication of his philosophy of conversation, evolved and developed in chapter 7 and 8 here. It is odd, on the face of it, that at the very moment he asserts that Western scientific rationality has exhausted its role of doubting the truths of poetry and must pass on to the next generation, Flusser moves towards history. We might, in retrospect, look back to the 1960s, to the failure in Brazil of the model of development through mechanization and industrialization, to the waning of the language of mechanical engineering as the discourse not only of policy but of architects and cultural visionaries, and its replacement by variants of network emergence as core trope, from ecological science to neoliberalism, and from Ted Nelson to Gilles Deleuze. But that seems to give Flusser less than his due, and to leave opaque his historiographic tactic. To get some inkling of what he might have intended, and to see what legacy he has left for us, we need to take another look at the dialectical turns in his argument. Thought, he argues, is a negating and negative process. What thought negates is the nothingness that proper names signify. Thought is a process that negates nothingness. As progressive doubt applied to the initial mythic confrontation with nothingness as non-identity, thought neutralizes the horror vacui but at the same time denudes the god named by that event by normalizing it as common, general, universal and therefore whole. The crisis of metaphor is its decline into the common name. Flusser tactically moves into the past as a way of working his way back up the entropic slope of language towards its beginning in poetry. We should consider this in terms of the crisis which was already beginning to engulf Brazil in 1963, a political crisis of course, but one propelled by the upshot of inward investment, debt. Debt, which has become the name of the central crisis of the early 21st century, is just such a failed metaphor. In its roots it denotes an obligation to the past, a debt owed to ancestors, to the generosity of the sun and earth and stars. In its new conformation, it denotes a payment due to an indefinitely postponed future. This reversal of polarity has in many respects poisoned the orientation of hope for a future radically different to the past by condemning the indebted, which included Brazil and now includes every nation and most individuals, to reproducing their labor and the social organization that goes with it until that impossible moment in which all debts are reconciled. To return to the past is not a mark of defeat but a tactical withdrawal designed to draw strength from that suppressed but vitally contemporary time he calls illo tempore, the moment of confrontation in which world and self are made new. These lectures illuminate the idea of truth in language by pointing towards its profoundly temporal structure, and in turning to the past, make the future, as the domain of hope, 
possible again. Sean Cubitt. 1. Philosophy as. The Critique of Language. We have gathered for a series of lectures that are, for me, a promise of adventure. I would propose to lay bare the basic lines of what I could call how I conceive the world, if that were not so intolerably pretentious, not only in relation to myself, but also in relation to the world. Effectively, I propose to elucidate, in this course of lectures, not only to you but also to myself, some points that seem to me both basic and obscure. I have, obviously, an approximate program of what I shall submit to your critique, but this program is only rough. It is, as they say in existential philosophy, at project, a project I sought to realize several times, with varying results. Results depend on the forces that converge upon them, and in this case, they depend upon you and me. That is why I have said that this series contains, for me, a promise of adventure. I cannot know in which direction your critiques will canalize the course of my argument. I shall prepare every individual lecture in response to the preceding discussion. I am therefore grateful to you for this opportunity, since I have never been able to discuss my thoughts with a group like the one present here. What we are getting ready to do is called philosophy, maybe with excessive elegance. I propose, as an hors d'oeuvre of this course, the discussion of this activity sometimes called philosophy. If we seek a distance point of view, in order to observe this activity, if philosophy is an external object, of which we are subjects, it will present itself as a member of that class of activities called small talk. From this phenomenological distance, where we suspend all previous knowledge that we may possibly have in relation to philosophy, it presents itself as an activity that consists of the reading of books, the discussion of such readings in groups of people generally gathered together in classrooms, and, sometimes, the elaboration of works written about such readings, works to be published in order to be read and discussed, and so on and so forth ad nauseum and ad infinitum. One cannot observe, in this phenomenological epoche, which we assume at this moment any, let us say, graspable effect of this activity. Philosophy is a purely linguistic activity, a chit-chat that has words as an instrument, words as a subject, and words as an aim. Husserl believes that this distance, which we assume, is a symptom of our humility, and that philosophy, that is, the phenomenon before which we are humbling ourselves, thus reveals its essence, its eidos. Philosophy's eidos is small talk. However, phenomenology's humility is the highest form of pride. If we observe philosophy from this angle of pretend innocence and ignorance, we shall be underrating the phenomenon before which we pretend to humble ourselves. In order to be itself, philosophy does not admit distance, but demands engagement. It is only through dedicated and integral engagement that philosophy will slowly reveal its essence, an essence that I do not hesitate to call beauty. We must therefore say that philosophy does not reveal itself to the distant and patient observer, but to the interested and impassioned participant. However, 
it is obvious that the distance, which revealed to us that philosophy is a type of small talk, is a perfectly legitimate and epistemologically pertinent point of view, although perhaps existentially impertinent. Somehow, this point of view relates to philosophy. To really philosophize is to read, to write, to talk to others, and to talk to oneself through that internal dialogue that Plato called thinking. Philosophy is a linguistic activity which takes place entirely on the terrain of written, spoken, or internally whispered language. Philosophy is a conversation. And it is a curious type of conversation, since its discourse flows, but does not progress, as for example, the scientific discourse progresses, nor does it manipulate objects, as for example, that discourse called art, manipulates. In my view, Dilthey is profoundly wrong in wanting to transform philosophy into a science of the spirit, because philosophy is structurally an unprogressive discourse. Marx is equally wrong, in my view, in proclaiming that philosophy only explains the world, when what really matters is to modify the world. Philosophy is structurally non-manipulative. A scientific philosophy, and a philosophy engaged in the Marxist sense, has already stopped being philosophy, yo ipso. Given philosophy's unprogressive and non-manipulative character, it is therefore perfectly legitimate to call it small talk. Let us consider, for one instant, the concept of small talk that I am employing here. Small talk is a type of conversation in which phrases flow just for the sake of flowing, without aiming at something external to the conversation. In small talk one speaks for the sake of speaking, without an external aim to the conversation. Small talk has no external subject, small talk is its own subject. A conversation that aims at an external aim, signifies such aim, and that aim is its meaning. Small talk has no meaning. But small talk is composed, like every conversation, of phrases, which are, respectively, composed of words. Words are signs of something, they mean something. Within small talk, their meanings are as if forgotten, swallowed up by the small talk itself. What matters in small talk is not the word's meaning, but the words themselves. To say that philosophy is small talk is to say that it lacks meaning. Let us take, as an example of small talk, exchanges at the food market, and demagogy. The orange seller who articulates phrases whose words signify the buyer's health, and the speaker at the political rally who articulates phrases whose words signify the country's debt, are not interested in the meaning of their words. Nonetheless, they still seek an external aim to small talk, that is, to sell oranges or canvas votes. These unconfessed and disguised aims become the meaning of small talk. Small talk lacks meaning if taken literally, but is full of meaning within a wider existential context. Small talk distinguishes itself from its opposite by its insincerity. Small talk is inauthentic conversation, because it has a meaning that is not the meaning of the words it employs. To say that philosophy is small talk is to say that it is formally meaningless, but that it has an unconfessed meaning. 
Can we pass such a merciless sentence upon philosophy? Yes, we can, since the two most characteristic currents of contemporary philosophy mutually judge each other thus. I am referring to that tendency vaguely called neopositivism and to that other known by the dubious term existentialism. Under a logical analysis, neopositivism's main weapon, practically every phrase articulated by the existentialists is revealed as pure meaningless noise. The aim of existentialism cannot, therefore, be the meaning of its phrases, but another, unconfessed aim. Existentialism is small talk. Under an existentialist analysis, practically every phrase articulated by the neopositivist obviously has a meaning that is not the meaning of the words employed. Effectively, neopositivist texts are nothing but precious and presumptuous pretexts meant to avoid the direct confrontation of the mind with the existential situation in which it finds itself. Neopositivism is small talk. And if we were to reduce the phrases that make up the discourse of the philosophy of the past to their logical symbolic or their existential climate, we would verify that they are, almost all of them, small talk. And the few phrases that could be saved from a logical symbolic point of view will be unmasked as existentially false, and the remaining few that are existentially sincere will not resist a neopositivist formal analysis. In other words, the phrases that compose philosophy's discourse are either mere sentimental exclamations without formal meaning, or pretentious formalism meant to hide existential angst, or both. Philosophy is, therefore, small talk. Having passed such a condemning sentence, I asked myself, deeply shocked, what would be an example of non-small talk? Obviously a conversation whose meaning is the meaning of the words that it employs. So let us search for this type of antithetical conversation so that we may engage with it, and let us abandon incontinenti the insincerities and noises of philosophy. Let us take the two examples opposite to philosophy already mentioned, that is, science and art. Obviously, Science is a conversation that is accepted as meaningful by the neopositivists, at least in theory. Its phrases resist logical analysis, and when they do not, they are happily abandoned by science in its progress. And it is equally obvious that the meaning of science is that external situation that the scientific words signify, in other words, the world. Both of these points are obvious, but both contain, if patiently analyzed, grave problems. Let us ignore this. However, if seen from an existential angle, how does science present itself? It presents itself as uniquely, gigantically, and monumentally insincere. It pretends that the logical intellect is able to grasp the totality, or parcels, of what we call reality, even when authentic immediate experience contradicts this pose at every step. And science pretends that man has the power to overcome the situation in which he was thrown, even when death contradicts this pose at every instant. Effectively, science is nothing but small talk, whose unconfessed meaning is the attempt to forget the absurdity of the human condition. Let us consider art. Obviously, for existentialism, 
artistic activity is a manifestation of man's own authenticity. Man realizes himself, as existence, through art, and imposes his way of being upon the circumstance in which he was thrown. Therefore, artistic existence is perfectly meaningful, although a more careful consideration may reveal grave problems. Let us ignore this. However, from a formal point of view, how does art present itself? What is the meaning of a poem, of a symphony, or of a painting? It certainly is not the meaning of the words, of the sounds, or of the paints that compose the work. They have another, unconfessed meaning. A formal analysis will reveal that art is nothing but a unique, gigantic, and monumental kind of small talk, formally equivalent in every way to the bray of an ass. The two examples cited are enough to curtail our enthusiasm and to encourage us to abandon philosophy and dive into some other type of conversation. What do these two examples suggest? That every conversation is small talk, if observed from an ironic point of view, that is, a distanced and unengaged point of view. And, mutatis mutandis, that every conversation, in which we engage existentially, with body and soul, is fully meaningful. However, philosophy differs from other types of conversation, because it is aware of this fact. Effectively, philosophy is a linguistic activity that distinguishes itself from every other linguistic activity, such as science and art, for example, by its lack of naivety in relation to the meaning of human activity. That, which we call the philosophical spirit is, essentially, the loss of our naive faith in the meaning of human activity. Or, to reformulate, we may say that philosophy is an activity that seeks this lost meaning. The term a meaning is, therefore, in my view, philosophy's key term, and therefore, also that of the series of lectures. The meaning of the term a meaning varies according to the context in which the term is applied. To attempt to give a definition of this term would be, therefore, to define this course. Given the fluidity of my program, I am incapable, at this point, to give a definition of its key term. But as every conversation must use at least approximately defined terms in order to be understood, I propose the following operative definition, until otherwise defined, meaning is that something, which signs aim at. If you accept this definition, for the duration, we shall have established the fundament from which our arguments will develop into unknown territory. Only signs are meaningful. A situation that does not contain signs is meaningless. A situation that does not contain signs is absurd because it is meaningless. What we call world, that is, the situation into which we have been thrown, will have meaning if it has signs, and if it does not, it will be absurd. Everything we do and suffer in this world, in synthesis, our life, will be meaningful as long as it relates to signs, and it will be absurd if it does not relate to signs. Signs are what introduce us to meaning, however, they conceal that meaning for the same reason. In this sense, signs are enigmatic. The world, and our existence within it, 
will be meaningful if they contain enigmatic elements, and if not, they will also be absurd. Science can be grouped into systems that will be called languages during this course. Languages are systems of signs, and from now on signs within languages shall be called symbols. A situation is meaningful when it contains signs, and it is an ordered situation when it has symbols contained in languages. Given these definitions, which are amplifications of the operative definition of the term e-meaning, I return to the theme of the consideration of philosophy. I have said that every linguistic activity presents itself as small talk, if observed from without, and as authentic conversation, if seen from the participant's perspective. Now I reformulate, linguistic activity, if observed from without, presents itself as a collection of false symbols, that is, of meaningless symbols, because these symbols are not enigmatic to those who are not engaged in such activity. The same activity, if observed from within, presents itself as authentic conversation, because it consists of genuine symbols. I shall have the opportunity, in the course of these lectures, to elaborate upon these points. Philosophy differs from other activities because it is the only one that observes itself from within. Science and art, to persist with these two examples, are linguistic activities that start from symbols in order to develop them according to the rules of their respective languages. Philosophy is a linguistic activity that turns toward the symbol to discover the symbol's meaning. This is what we mean when we say that philosophy is reflexive. The movement of every linguistic activity's discourse is progressive, philosophy's movement is regressive. Because of its structure, philosophy is a linguistic movement that is opposed to the rest, and effectively, it drives against the others in order to reveal their meaning. Because of its structure, philosophy is a critique of linguistic activities, and the term of philosophy of language is, in my opinion, a pleonism. It is not experienced as a pleonism because, given our naivety in relation to meaning, we are not always aware that everything that is not linguistic is absurd. Philosophy as the critique of language, therefore, philosophy out court, will be the theme of this course of lectures. Philosophy turns toward the symbol to discover the symbol's meaning. Within this turn resides philosophy's loss of naivety. The other linguistic activities, which I shall call from now on progressive thought, naively and uncritically accept the meaning of the symbols with which they operate. Progressive thought naively and indubitably accepts that symbols, which I shall generally call concepts, seek something external to themselves, that is, reality, and they progress from such premise. Only philosophy doubts this premise. Progressive thought accepts the enigmatic character of its own elements without critique, they do not frighten it. Philosophy faces this enigmatic character of symbols, and this is what the ancients meant when they said that fright is the beginning of philosophy. Aristotle said, Propter admirationum enim et nunc et primo hominis principiobin philosophari, it is through fright one that men started to philosophize, now and in the past. Because it is reflexive and regressive, 
philosophy is an activity that confronts what is frightening. And this fright, which philosophy is, only extinguishes itself when the philosopher believes to have discovered that symbols do not conceal anything. In this discovery of nothingness, fright transforms itself into a sensation of absurdity and futility. This is the case of both Camus and Kafka. And Wittgenstein formulates it in a definitive manner, there is no enigma. The discovery of nothingness behind the symbol is the discovery of the tautology of language. Language as a tautological system would be language as a system of empty symbols, and therefore false. Given our definition of meaning, this would imply an absurd world and the absurdity of the human situation. As paradoxical as it may seem, both existentialism and neopositivism seem to point toward this terribly unbearable result. The loss of naive faith in the meaning of symbols, which is the starting point of philosophy, seems to want to result in the discovery of total absurdity. This would not only be the end of philosophy, but also of every activity of thought. It would be the end of that conversation called Western civilization, since, through philosophy, this conversation would recognize itself as small talk. The conclusion would be the Wittgensteinian one, whereof one cannot speak, thereof one must be silent. The aim of this course of lectures will be to combat this result. I shall seek to demonstrate, both from a formal and an existential point of view, that the enigma of symbols, which are the elements of our thought, is inexhaustible. I shall seek to demonstrate that the conversation called Western Civilization is not fated to fall into mutism from either a formal or existential perspective, even though this fall is perfectly possible. I shall seek this aim via three distinct paths. I shall first seek to formally analyze our thought as a linguistic activity that develops within the field of particular languages. Following that, I shall seek to analyze this activity from an existential perspective, that is, as the progressive realization of a project contained within our languages. And lastly, I shall seek to illustrate this progressive realization within the course of Western history. Therefore, appealing to the terminology of classical philosophy, I shall first apply pure reason followed by practical reason, and lastly, historical reason to the analysis of the situation in which we find ourselves. Therefore, I ask for your collaboration in this program. My conviction, which I shall seek to defend, and to which I shall seek to convert you through an effort of proselytism, is the following, the sciences, the arts, and the religions, in some, all forms of mental activity, are the progressive elaboration of symbols, which serve as elements of this activity. Symbols may, therefore, become extinguished. In being elaborated, these symbols transform the dormant potentialities within them into realities. Today, the physical sciences verge on this ultimate elaboration. They have transformed their symbols into instruments. These symbols are, therefore, no longer enigmatic, and the world of physics has been transformed into an absurd set of theories. Parallel to this, and by anticipating the results, 
other conversations are also threatened to fall into the absurdity of small talk. However, philosophy's role is precisely to counteract this advance. Its duty is to discover the inextinguishable enigma that are the primordial symbols, and to demonstrate that the realization reached is only partial and imperfect. In other words, philosophy's role is to renew the sensation of fright before the enigmatic world that surrounds us. Thus renewed, philosophy will give a new meaning to human life. For whoever engages in thought through body and soul, to think, is not necessarily small talk. On the contrary, it is the constant discovery of enigma as the fundament of thought. This discovery is what I called beauty, and it is to such frightening beauty which philosophy discovers, if it is honest, that I invite you. 2. Pure reason as the structure of language. During my introductory lecture, I said that the fright before the situation in which man finds himself is the reason for philosophy. And this is true both from a historical and biographical perspective. However, from a methodological perspective, the moment of fright is not a good entry point for philosophy. As you know, the philosophical discipline is classified according to the themes from which it discourses. These classifications have a didactic aim and serve to teach philosophy, although they are not good for teaching how to philosophize. Therefore, these classifications vary according to the pedagogical prejudices of the classifiers. My own prejudices suggest the following classification. 1. Theory of Knowledge 2. Theory of Being A. Ontology B. Cosmology C. The Analysis of Existence D. Theology 3. Theory of How Things Should Be A. Ethics B. Legal philosophy, C. Aesthetics. D. Art philosophy. 4. Theory of becoming. A. The philosophy of nature. B. The philosophy of science. C. The philosophy of history and culture, D. Philosophical anthropology. E. The philosophy of society, economy, religion, etc. 5. Theory of thought. A. Logic. B. Mathematics. C. Philosophical psychology. I confess that this classification is artificial and that it imposes itself upon philosophy like a straitjacket. We shall not submit to it during this course of lectures. It will serve merely as a starting point. I shall begin my considerations within the field of what I have defined as theory of knowledge. Modern philosophy, since the Renaissance, oscillates between two extremes within this field, called rationalism and empiricism. Paucis verbis, both positions affirm the following. Rationalism, knowledge is a function of reason and consists of judgments. These judgments transform the confused raw material, which is indistinct from that dubious environment called external world, into clear and distinct realities. Within knowledge, the external world becomes realized. Knowledge is the rationalization, that is, the humanization, of the external world. We may distinguish three historical phases within this position. 
First phase, there is an abyss between reason and the external world, which God helps to overcome. With God's help the external world may become completely known, that is, transformed into clear and distinct judgments. The representatives of this phase are Descartes, Spinoza, Leibniz, and Wolff. Second phase, because it is in opposition to reason, the external world is nothing but a shadow of the reason that reason itself projects. Knowledge progressively enlightens this shadow and will end up recognizing itself in the shadow. In the last stage, the external world will have been overcome by reason, that is, everything will be reason, and nothing will be the external world. The representatives of this phase are Hegel, Marx, by inversion, and positivism. Third phase, because the external world is in opposition to reason, it cannot be touched by reason. The judgments formulated by reason cannot carry knowledge of the external world. They are intellectual phenomena and cannot overcome the intellect. Knowledge, if there is any, is not articulable. The intellect seeks in vain to break its shackles. The intellect is not an adequate instrument for the external world. The representatives of this phase are the neopositivists. From initial optimism through to final pessimism, there is one element that binds all rationalists, the aim toward clarity and distinction, the standard of which is mathematics or logic. Empiricism, knowledge is a function of experience and consists in the intellectual organization of impressions received by the intellect. Historically, empiricism is a reaction to rationalism and always conserves this polemic and negative character. The intellect is a tabula rosa. It is an empty place upon which the external world impresses itself. It has no autonomy. Knowledge is an organized impression that the intellect has. The organization of this impression is due to the repetitive character of the external world. Experiences repeat and cause the impression of knowledge. The value of knowledge is only practical, since it provokes an adequate behavior in beings that possess intellect. The intellect is an instrument of these beings, just as gills and trunks are instruments of other beings. Knowledge is not an end in itself, but only the means. There is no such thing as knowledge itself, knowledge is only an impression. The representatives of this position are Locke, Hume, Schopenhauer, Nietzsche, Bergson, Kierkegaard, the existentialists, and pragmatism. Empiricism always tends toward skepticism and anti-intellectualism. It always appeals to raw and concrete experience, be it sensible, vital, or manipulable. Both positions, although opposites, lead to an either confessed or unconfessed despair in relation to the possibility of knowledge. However, it is obvious that something is wrong in the dichotomy that they establish. Science, which discourses within the terrain put in parentheses by the two extreme positions, ignores the fundamental objections hurled at it by them. It synthesizes rational and empirical elements and produces a growing body of knowledge, both theoretical and practical, to challenge philosophy. Therefore, Attempts to synthesize these extreme positions have also been philosophically undertaken. 
the most important one was the Kantian. The Kantian position is this, the external world impresses itself upon reason, and in this sense the empiricists are correct. But reason is not empty, and in this sense they are wrong. It has, on the contrary, a structure called categories. At first, due to its structure, reason receives the impressions in two ways, time and space. And then, reason organizes these impressions, called phenomena, into several compartments of its structure, which are, one, unity, plurality, and totality, two, reality, negation, and limitation, three, substance and accident, cause and effect, and reciprocity, four, possibility, existence, and necessity. Due to these compartments called categories, reason organizes phenomena into judgments as knowledge. These judgments may be classified from two points of view. The first distinguishes between analytic and synthetic judgments, the second between a priori and a posteriori judgments. Analytic judgments predicate something contained in the subject, for example, green grass is green. Synthetic judgments predicate something not contained in the subject, for example, the green grass is in the garden. A priori judgments result from the simple application of categorical rules, for example, one is not two. A posteriori judgments do not apply these rules, for example, yesterday it rained. It is obvious, given the Kantian definition of reason, that only a priori judgments produce knowledge, and that only synthetic judgments help knowledge to progress. In order to have knowledge, we need to have synthetic judgments a priori. Both rationalism and empiricism deny this possibility. Rationalism says that all of our judgments are either analytic a priori, therefore tautological, or synthetic a posteriori, therefore noise. Empiricism says that all of our judgments are either synthetic a posteriori, therefore instruments of behavior, or analytic a priori, therefore mere diversion. In the end, rationalism and empiricism agree. Kant affirms that synthetic a priori judgments do exist, and that they are the judgments of mathematics. 2 plus 2 equals 4 is a synthetic judgment because the predicate 4 is not contained in the subject 2 plus 2, and it is a priori because it obeys the categorical rules. Science produces knowledge because it turns phenomena into mathematical judgments. Quat erat demonstrandum. The Kantian argument, as genius as it is in its multiple aspects, seems particularly weak in its premises. What happens if we invert the a priori synthetic judgment and say, for is 2 plus 2? Does it not become analytic, since 2 plus 2 is contained in 4? But let us ignore that. What is shocking in Kant is the aleatory character of the categories that supposedly form the structure of pure reason. How did Kant arrive at the discovery of precisely these categories, and not others? Kant confesses. His categories emerge from a table of judgments that he elaborated and which consist of four groups of three types of judgments. The first relates to quantity, the second to quality, the third to relation, and the fourth to modality.
But how did this table of judgments emerge? Can fall silent. However, it is obvious how it emerged. The Kantian types of judgments are the result of the syntax of phrases. Effectively, from a syntactical analysis of phrases of the German language and similar languages. To begin with, the first two forms of receiving impressions, Anschauungsformen, which refer to space and time, correspond to substantives and verbs. And the categories are nothing but grammatical forms of languages of a certain type. Far from becoming the structure of pure reason, taut court, the forms, and the Kantian categories are, if Kant is right, only the categories of a particular type of languages. I took Kant as the starting point for my considerations because Kant seems to be the only possibility to avoid the madness of skepticism. Let us see therefore, what may be salvaged from the Kantian system. Kant agrees with the radical rationalist that the external world cannot be intellectually reached. The thing in itself is unreachable by pure reason. It definitively proves, to me, that any metaphysical attempt is condemned to failure, at least intellectually. Hegelianism, Marxism, and positivism seem to be a relapse into a pre-Kantian stage of philosophy. Neopositivism is, in this sense, a recovery. And Kant also proved definitively, to me, that this limitation of the intellect has skepticism as a necessary consequence. Knowledge is possible within a restricted field that is hermetically sealed. But not in the way that Kant thinks. What Kant ignores, in my opinion, and herein lies his fatal error, is the fact that the intellect always grows, however limited and closed in on itself. The intellect's field continually expands and this expansion is precisely synonymous with knowledge. In what does this expansion reside? To speak in a pseudo-Kantian way, in the emergence of new phenomena, of new categories. But I shall abandon the Kantian terminology going forward, because I consider it misleading. I shall say that the intellect's field expands through the emergence of new proper names and new grammatical rules of the language that the intellect is a part of. And from now on I shall call this expansion, knowledge. The study of the Kantian categories provoked me, not biographically but methodologically, to identify the intellect with the field of languages. Last Friday Professor L. Hegenberg too made a distinction between referent and logical words. Although I find this distinction somewhat problematic, I accept it for now, and I shall say that referent words correspond approximately to what Kant calls impressions, one, and logical words to what he calls categories. Today I shall deal only with the first type. But I shall substitute the nomenclature. I shall call referent words in names. Names are therefore, words that apparently refer to the external world. The external world is apparently called by proper names in order to be framed within the intellect's discourse. To call names is the intellect's first function. I shall distinguish between two types of names, which are, proper names and common names. This distinction is parallel to what medieval scholastics established between particulars and universals. 
Scholastics proved through the famous quarrel of universals that this distinction, far from being a problem of formal logic, is an epistemological problem, and from then on, an ontological and theological one. Allow me to clarify this problem a little. Languages of the type spoken in Europe and the Near and Middle East have a structure that allows for the classification of words from two different angles. They can be considered as words or as elements of phrases. The first criterion provides traditional grammatical terms such as substantive, adjective, verb etc. The second criterion provides terms such as subject, object, predicate etc. The first criterion involves problems such as declension, conjugation, etc. The second criterion involves problems such as the hierarchy of phrases. Transposing from grammar to logic, the first criterion involves the classic problems related to concepts, such as the problem of definition, generalization, etc. The second criterion involves the classic problems related to judgment, such as the problem of deduction, induction, or rather, the problems of syllogisms, if we are to speak scholastically. Given the structure of this type of languages, discourse consists of phrases composed of words that obey rules. These rules have two levels, they regulate the form of the words within the phrase, and they regulate the form of the phrase within discourse. Transposing it to the terrain of logic, we may say that the intellect, or reason, informed by this type of languages consists of judgments composed of concepts that obey rules. These rules have two levels, they regulate the form of concepts within judgments, and they regulate the form of judgments within discursive thought. Since the existence of other types of language and intellect were largely being ignored during antiquity and the Middle Ages, it was believed that this structure was the very structure of the human intellect, taut court, and maybe even that of the divine intellect. After all, men always imagine God in their own image. The quarrel of the universals unfolds in the first level of meaning. We may roughly distinguish two positions, realist and nominalist. Realist, universal names are the basic elements of the intellect, and as such, the basic elements of reality. They are, effectively, the platonic ideas formalized. Particular names, or proper names, are existential applications of universal names. For example, this is a horse. This is a proper name, horse is a universal name. My judgment affirms that this is a member of the class horse. In respect to the judgment, the particular this is realized by being a member of the class horse. The verb is affirms this fact. My judgment is knowledge, because it realized this in a horse, because it realized the particular in the universal. I know because I universalize particulars. Universalia sunt anti res. Realism is the father of rationalism. Nominalist, universals emerge if I compare particulars. For example, this and that are similar. I shall call this similarity a horse. Therefore, this is a horse. The term horse is only the name that I gave to the similarity. 
it is a mere flatus voces. The universal has no reality, since it emerges after the thing. Universalia sunt post res. My judgment is not knowledge because it adds nothing to the thing. The Franciscans, who are radical nominalists, do not admit, therefore, that reason can provide knowledge. Only unspoken faith can do it. Nominalism is the father of empiricism. The quarrel of universals is a typical example of the projection of the structure of fusional languages onto the so-called reality. It turns Latin grammar into the basis of ontology, metaphysics, and theology. It is trivial in the medieval meaning of the term, because it advances through the three paths of reading, writing, and recounting in the Latin language. However, this quarrel must be faced, as trivial as it may be, because it speaks of the structure of our type of thought. After having been abandoned for 400 years, it emerges again today. It is necessary to analyze how universals and particulars emerge in the intellect. Existentially speaking, the proper name emerges as a consequence of a gesture. It is the articulation of a gesture, such as, for example, look there. That is why I have denominated the intellectual activity that produces particular names as calling. Proper names are articulated gestures. This gesture has a gestalt, or in other words, it points. The question, what does it point at, is metaphysical and Kant has proven that it cannot be answered. Effectively, a formal analysis will prove that this question is either secular or meaningless. The gesture that points is the intellect's borderline situation. Furthermore, the gesture itself is already beyond the intellect. The gesture is not a reality but a virtuality. The proper name realizes this virtuality. By calling virtualities by name, the gesture realizes the intellect. Mutatus mutandis, by calling virtualities by name, the intellect realizes itself. Effectively, the proper name is the nucleus of reality. World and self, such metaphysical concepts, therefore false concepts, are nothing but the two horizons and two aspects of the proper name. The pointing aspect, the meaningful aspect of the proper name, is its world aspect. And the articulating aspect, the symbolic aspect of the proper name, is its self-aspect. It is precisely as the synthesis of these two aspects that the proper name is the nucleus, the germ, of reality. Therefore, the proper name is a word of a particular language, for example of Portuguese or of symbolic mathematics. The virtualities that are very inappropriately called world and self become realized within the field of particular languages. Languages are, as I said last week, sets of symbols and rules. World and self become realized within these sets. I shall dedicate the next lecture to the discussion of how a world and self become realized within sets called fusional languages, that is, by predicating subjects, which are, in the final analysis, proper names and their derivatives. Today I shall draw your attention toward another fact. 
The modern age has gradually discovered phenomena that could be interpreted as gestures that point. I shall not discuss the reality of these discoveries, and that is why I call them phenomena, in a Kantian style. For example, the gesture of an amoeba that points toward light. The amoeba's heliotropism is, therefore, from our point of view, meaningful, since it points toward something. However, from the amoeba's point of view, if you allow me to express myself in this way, the gesture is meaningless, because it does not result in the articulation of a proper name that is an element of a ruled set. There is no amoebic language, or at least there is no amoebic language that can be recognized as such by our intellect. Consequently, we cannot translate ourselves into the amoebic point of view. We cannot converse with it. Consequently, the amoeba does not exist for us, but is only one of these virtualities that has been realized by a proper name, in this case, this is an amoeba. The amoeba's quality of being is what existential analysis calls to be present at hand, vorhandensein. I shall give a second example, the inhabitant of the Andaman Islands. This native has gestures that are, from our point of view, meaningful, since they point toward something. These gestures are also meaningful from the Andamanese point of view, because they are articulated. They result in something that we may call, through parallelism, proper names, since they are symbols of a ruled set called Andamanese language. Consequently I can, theoretically, equate the structure of this language to mine, I can translate myself to Andamanese and converse with him. The Andamanese exists with me, he is my emit sign. And because the Andamanese realizes himself within a ruled set, not only can I know him, just like I can know the amoeba, but I can also recognize myself in him. When facing him I not only have knowledge, the result of the predication of subjects, but also recognition, the result of conversation. However, I shall verify, through this effort of translation toward conversation, that the structure through which the Andamanese realizes himself and the world is completely different from mine. Although the Andamanese exists, as I exist, he exists in a different form. And although the Andamanese realizes a world, as I do, he realizes an entirely different world. If I manage to converse with the Andamanese and to coexist with him, I must, effectively, abandon my form of existence and the form of my world. There will never be an authentic conversation between the Andamanese and myself unless I change, or, vice versa, unless he changes. We are facing two different realities. For example, the two levels of meaning that characterizes my reality, the levels of concept and judgment, either cannot be found in the Andamanese language, or it has an entirely different form. My logic cannot be applied to Andamanese reality. If I apply my logic to Andamanese reality, I can only come to know it, as I know the amoebic reality, but I cannot come to recognize it. If I do this, I transform the Andamanese into something that is present at hand, and I deny him existential ontological dignity. And if I translate myself into Andamanese, I let go of my logic, 
and therefore cannot know him within my meaning of the term, although I could recognize him. Third example, all of you have gestures that point. These gestures result in proper names that are symbols of a rule set called Portuguese language. My gestures result in proper names that are symbols of a rule set called a Czech language. Let us suppose that I cannot speak Portuguese. The structure of my language could be formalized into a rule set called a symbolic logic, as well as yours. Your language and mine have an approximately identical structure, although they differ in several details. I can, therefore, in virtue of this similarity, translate myself into your reality without losing my structure. We can converse. We coexist. I can know you, and as I come to know you, I can recognize myself in you. To know and to recognize means that I can comprehend you. And you can, so I hope, comprehend me, including this argument. We coexist because we speak the same type of language. We have the same form of being and we exist within the same reality. Without a doubt, there are problems of translation between us, even if we all speak Portuguese, but these problems would disappear if we were to speak through mathematics or symbolic logic. This knowledge and recognition are the comprehension within conversation, they are the aim of the predicative realization of proper names, which is the intellect. And this is also the synthesis of what I would call my theory of knowledge. With your permission, I shall elaborate this theory in my next lecture. 3. Thought as Doubt Last Friday I attempted to sketch, in a very rudimentary and therefore unsatisfactory manner, how proper names emerge in the intellect. Please note that, according to the epistemology that I am attempting to elaborate here before you, the proper name is anterior to the intellect and the external world. Effectively, the proper name is the ontic nucleus of both the intellect and the external world. According to the epistemology that I am elaborating for you, knowledge is ontologically anterior to knower and known. Knower and known are the two aspects and the two horizons of knowledge. Or, in order to reformulate this thought in more appropriate terms for this course of lectures, intellect and external world are the two aspects and the two horizons of language. The proper name as the source from which language springs is therefore the source from which the intellect and the external world spring. I shall return several times to this problem during this course because I shall seek to clarify it from an existential perspective and from a historical one. In the existential context, I shall seek to elaborate the climate that surrounds the emergence of the proper name, and I shall call this climate poetic. In the historical context I shall seek to discuss some specific proper names that are the germs of that discourse called Western history, and I shall call these proper names myths. Poetry and myths around, in a manner of speaking, the proper name at the moment of its eruption from nothingness, and it is necessary for me to at least mention this fact within this context. The proper name, as it erupts, is an enigma in its plenitude. I apologize if this argument is not completely clear, because it presupposes a rationale, which I have not elaborated yet. I appeal to your intuition, 
and to your patients, as the argument should become clear during the course. I repeat, the intellect and the external world are the two aspects of language. More precisely, the intellect is the structure of language and the external world is the meaning of language. The intellect is how phrases occur, and the external world is what the phrases mean. Phrases are processes, that is, they occur. While they occur, they realize intellects and external worlds. I shall dedicate this lecture to the discussion of how phrases occur. It will be, therefore, a discussion about the intellect. And I shall limit the discussion to phrases of languages of a particular type, of the fusional type. It will be, therefore, a discussion about the Western type of intellect. Since everyone in this room is an intellect of this type, we have at our disposal two avenues to access the proposed discussion, the extrospective and the introspective. We are able to observe how phrases occur within other intellects, and we can intuit how they occur. Therefore, this lecture will be limited to extrospective observation. Note that I appeal to a vague term to denominate the occurrence that I shall discuss, that is, the term phrase. I do not say thought, or sentence, or judgment, so as not to preconceive the argument. The term phrase evokes a form, a gestalt, for example, a musical phrase, and this is the image that I wish to evoke in you. Let us consider therefore how these gestalten occur. They occur through the activity of discourse. The course of phrases is, so to speak, inclined, it has a slope, it is a discourse. It runs, so to speak, downwards. What I am saying is not a poetic image or a word game. Although both poetic image and word game are justified when discussing language. What I am describing is the attempt to visualize the process of the occurrence of phrases. Phrases originate at the summit of the proper name and discourse toward the plane of the common name of all classes. They originate at the summit of the infinity of meaning and they discourse toward zero meaning. The slope of the discourse is the measure of the exhaustion of meaning. In the course of the discourse, the infinite meaning of the proper name is progressively exhausted. The proper name has infinite meanings. Or, as traditional philosophy says, that which exists has infinite attributes. The discourse progressively explicates the meanings implicit in the proper name and the slope of the discourse is therefore the explication of meanings. The course of the discourse is, at least in theory, infinite, since the number of meanings of a proper name is also infinite. I may eternally discourse around a proper name, and still, theoretically, I shall never explicate its meaning. We shall verify in the course of these lectures that in practice, that is, in history, there is a limit to the discourse and an exhaustion of themes. Discourse consists of phrases that predicate names. To predicate is synonymous with explicating meanings. The meaning of a name is explicated within the predicate. The phrase is the explication of a meaning because the phrase is a predicated name. As it is predicated, the name is transformed into the subject of a phrase. 
I shall leave the discussion of this transformation, which is effectively a leap between ontological layers, for another context. I shall define, for this context, the subject of a phrase as a group of words in which at least one is a name. The phrase is completed by a predicate. The predicate is a group of words in which at least one is a verb. I shall leave the discussion of verbs, which is effectively a discussion about forms of being, for another context. Therefore, this is the standard form, the gestalt of the phrase, subject-predicate. This is obviously an extremely simplified form. The phrases that actually occur are generally much more complex. And there are, so to speak, defective phrases, such as it rains, chove, and enough. Boster. However, an analysis of phrases can, in theory, reduce every phrase to the simplified standard, or can complete defective phrases up to the simplified standard. A phrase that consists of subject and predicate, for example the phrase John loves, discourses from the subject John through the predicate loves. A brief analysis of the verb to love allows a reformulation of this phrase to John is a lover. This phrase discourses from the subject John, which is a proper name, toward the predicate is a lover, which contains the name of a class. The phrase predicates the proper name John as it explicates one of its meanings, which is being a lover. The common name that appears in the predicate as lover is a less meaningful name than the proper name John, and this lesser meaning is the aim of the phrase. By predicating the proper name John in the common name lover, by affirming, therefore, that John is a member of the class lover, our phrase is knowledge. Within the phrase, John becomes partially known as a member of a particular class. The full knowledge of a John would be an argument that enumerates every class to which a John belongs. As a proper name, John is a member of an infinity of classes. John cannot be exhaustively predicated. To reformulate, to predicate names, is to exhaust meanings through the enumeration of classes. If you take into consideration, for just one moment, the Kantian problem of analytic and synthetic judgments, you will verify that the problem is overcome by my argument. Kant affirms that, the grass is green, is an analytic judgment, because it predicates a class of which the name contained in the subject participates. Effectively, it says that the proper name, grass, is a member of the class, greenness. However, Kant affirms that the judgment, the green grass is in the garden, is a synthetic judgment, because it predicates something that is not contained in the name that is part of the subject. Kant is mistaken. To reformulate, the judgment says, strictly speaking, this green grass is in the garden. And one of the meanings of the proper name this green grass is precisely that of being a member of the class what is in the garden, and it is, therefore, an analytic judgment in the Kantian sense. Effectively, every phrase is an analytic judgment if it is reduced to the proper name, which is the starting point of the slope of every phrase. However, this fact does not imply the impossibility of progressive knowledge, as Kant thinks, 
and the following argument will seek to demonstrate it. Let us consider our standard phrase again, John loves. It discourses, it is understandable, it is, therefore, part of the discourse. But it is as if something was missing in its form, as if its gestalt was not complete. Our phrase discourses without an object, it is, therefore, as if the object was lost. Let us give an object to our phrase, and let us say, John loves Mary. Let us try to reformulate this phrase, which is now composed of subject, predicate, and object, John is a member of the class, Mary's lovers. And let us hope, keeping in mind the happiness of both, that John is the sole member of this class. However, we may reformulate the phrase in a different manner, Mary is a member of the class, those who are loved by John. In this, Gestalt, which is more complete, the phrase establishes a relation between two proper names through the predicate. This relation has an active aspect, if seen from the subject, and a passive aspect, if seen from the object. We may invert this phrase by saying that Mary is loved by John, and we may, at last, give it the following form, there is love from John for Mary, which would be an attempt to reconstruct the Greek aorist in Portuguese. I leave the discussion of these formulations for when the analysis of the verb is our theme. In any case, we can say that the phrase synthesizes two proper names in the predicate, the two proper names that appear in both the subject and the object. Mary also becomes known in the predicate, like John, as a loved one. And this is my argument against Kent. By synthesizing, in the predicate, the meanings of the John and Mary, our phrase is progressive knowledge, even though it is an analytic judgment in the Kantian sense. The complete standard phrase, or the phrase that has a gestalt, subject, predicate, object, establishes a situation that I shall call from now on a situation of reality. This is what Wittgenstein calls Sackverholt and what Heidegger calls Bewandtnis. John Loves Mary establishes a relation between proper names, Einen Verholt von Sacken, and these proper names are explicated together in the predicate Sind MIT Einander Bewandt Uendis Weinander Guendit. The phrase John Loves Mary realizes, in its predicate, a situation of reality, because in this predicate a John is realized in his meaning as the one who loves Mary in her meaning as the one who is loved, and then both these meanings are synthesized. As the realization of a situation, our phrase is, in this sense, a synthetic judgment, but this is not the Kantian meaning of the term. On the contrary, it is a dynamic meaning, which Kant ignores. The situation of reality established by our phrase is the synthetic result of a dialectic process that has the subject as thesis and the object as antithesis. And it is in this sense that the discourse is progressive, because it is predicative. It realizes situations of reality. There are therefore two progressive aspects of the discourse, it progresses as it exhausts the meanings of proper names toward common names. The unreachable aim of this progression is the common name of all classes, that is, the exhaustion of meaning. 
and it progresses by synthetically relating proper names into classes and establishing situations of reality. The unreachable aim of this progression is to relate every proper name into a single class for all classes, therefore, a completely realized reality. As we can see, both aspects of the discourse's progress become confused at infinity and are identical to a definitive silence. The aim of the discourse is, therefore, to end the enigma that proper names are. The aim of the discourse, that is, of the intellect, is absurd. Let us reconsider, for a moment, the form of the phrase, subject, predicate, object. This is a specific form, which has been rigorously studied through existential analysis. This form is called project. The phrases of fusional languages are projected situations of reality. The total sum of these situations, therefore the external world, in which the intellect exists, if we appeal to existentialist terminology, is a projected reality. In the standard phrase the predicate projects the subject toward the object. The phrase flows through a jet called predicate, from a substratum called subject, toward an obstacle called object, and in this jet it realizes a project called a situation of reality. Thus, this particular form of project characterizes the external world that languages of our type establish. The so-called eternal problems of philosophy are the result of the structure of our world. It is possible to analyze the phrase from the subject, object, or predicate, and these analyses will result in different Weltanschauungen, different worldviews. And I insist in the affirmative that, at this stage, the concept of a grammatical analysis of the phrase as synonymous with the ontological analysis of reality must have started to acquire a degree of plausibility for you. If I analyze the phrase from the perspective of the subject, the phrase presents itself as a form in which something is being transferred from the subject toward an object. Let us call this something a quality, and let us call subject and object substances, thus, we shall have the main guidelines of the Aristotelian worldview. The view of the world, as an ordered transfer of qualities from substance to substance, is the result of viewing the world from the subject of the phrase, which established a situation of reality. If I analyze the phrase from the perspective of the object, I shall have a view of the situation as consisting of the impact of something that projected itself upon the object. This view corresponds approximately to the mechanistic worldview, which is the fundament for the science of the 17th to the 19th centuries, the world as a chain of situations, that is, as a chain of forces that act upon bodies. From this, let us say, objective point of view, the fundamental structure of reality is inertia, since the object represents the passive side of the phrase. If I analyze the phrase from the perspective of the predicate, the phrase presents itself as a process at whose extremes lie the subject and the object, like horizons, but whose real nucleus is predication. This worldview could be characterized by the term a Heraclitian river, it is also the ground for the Hegelian worldview and is fundamental to contemporary science, the world presents itself as a chain of becoming, the world is not, but turns into, becomes, happens.
The highest expression of this worldview is Nietzsche, the world as will to power, and that which wills is the subject of the situation, and power is its object, but the situation's reality is in the willing, which is the predicate. The world as a collection of fields, in which energy reaches power in the form of matter, is the scientific consequence of Nietzschean philosophy. All of these worldviews are the result of the form of the phrase in our languages. We may oscillate between these worldviews, or we may seek a synthesis of these worldviews, but we may not conceive of the world through a different structure. We cannot do it, because the structure of the external world is precisely the structure of our intellect, and the structure of our intellect is the structure of our languages. I believe that this is exactly what the Kantian critique of pure reason establishes. Our world has, categorically, the structure of our languages. Our world is the realization of a project contained within our languages, and our mind is the obverse of this realization of the world. With this argument, I believe to have overcome the nefarious dichotomy intellect-slash-thing, or subject-slash-object, which adheres to classical epistemology and ontology like a plague. If knowledge is defined as the adequation of intellect to thing, then we do not need any divine help for this adequation, as Descartes thinks, nor do we need to despair in relation to this adequation, as the skeptical rationalists and empiricists think. Intellect and thing are adequate through language. That is why progressive knowledge is perfectly possible, and the sciences prove it. It is true that this knowledge is purely linguistic, that it consists of chains of phrases that discourse, but this does not diminish the epistemological value of that discourse. The thing in itself, that which is therefore beyond language, is ineffable. If it is something, then it is the meaning of the proper names in its fullness, and language realizes this meaning as it discourses about proper names through their predication. This is knowledge, and all the rest is inarticulate metaphysics. For methodological reasons I cannot delve, within the current context, into any considerations of the concept of a project. However, it must be obvious, even in the current context, that the project, which has been established by the structure of our languages, establishes a limitation to our intellect. This is what Wittgenstein means when he says that the history of thought is a collection of progressive wounds which the intellect acquires as it throws itself against its iron bars. And it is also what Rilke means as he says, in his poem, characteristically called the panther, Uendi Hintertausen Staben Kane Welt, and behind a thousand iron bars, no world. However, the project of our languages not only limits our intellect, it also makes the intellect expendable. The limitations are always present, enclosing the intellect. But these limitations always crumble against the intellect's attack. The intellect expands not only through the continuous emergence of proper names, but also through the emergence of new rules, and through the disappearance of old rules. I shall have opportunity during this lecture to discuss both these aspects of the intellect's expansion. What I intend to do at this moment with these considerations is to offer you a definition of the term intellect with which I am operating. 
I shall define intellect as the field in which phrases occur. A field, as physics applies the meaning of the term, is the structure of occurrences. A magnetic field, for example, is the more or less imaginary lines along which iron filings would manifest around a magnetic pole. This is the meaning with which I wish to endow the term field, according to the definition that I am proposing. The intellect is a particular structure in which phrases occur, if and when, they occur. This is an almost Kantian image of the intellect, or as he would say, of pure reason. It overcomes the empiricist tabula rosa, as well as the rationalist's knowledge factory. But the image is hardly Kantian. It differs from Kant because it admits the existence of intellects with different structures, and it differs further because it admits that the structures of the intellect are progressively malleable. Should you accept my definition, it will condemn you, as it condemns me, to a relativist approach in relation to the validity of all knowledge. Any given knowledge is valid only within an intellect's given structure. I say this in relation to the arguments that constitute knowledge. For now, I remain silent in relation to the notion of truth. We shall see during this course that the term truth varies according to historical context and that the appropriate place for us to discuss truth will be the field of poetry. I repeat, therefore, that the definition of intellect as a field in which phrases of a given language occur condemns not only the truth of these phrases, but also their validity, to relativism. I do not believe, however, that this relativism necessarily has the flavor of despair. An obvious objection to my definition would be to say that phrases from different languages can occur within the same intellect. I ask you not to formulate this objection, because this will be the theme of my next lecture. I believe to have made it clear that the problem of polyglotism is an epistemological and ontological problem of the first degree. The translation of phrases from one language to another, and the translation of intellects from one language to another, thus becomes the very same test for the theory of knowledge that I am endeavoring to develop here with you. I shall, therefore, deal with translation, before dealing with conversation in a proper sense. Allow me to recapitulate, in a few words, what I have sought to elaborate in this lecture. Proper names are the source of language. From these proper names, predicates are projected, and in this process proper names transform into the subjects of phrases. Predicates that are projected from proper names contain verbs that are articulations of the modalities of being, of proper names. The aim of predication is the common name. The progressive enumeration of these common names is the slope of the discourse, which consists of phrases. In this process, other proper names may be included in the phrases as objects. The predicate establishes situations of reality in this type of phrase. The external world is a collection of these situations of reality and is, in this sense, the meaning of discourse. The intellect is the field of discourse. External world and intellect are two aspects of discourse. Before we end this lecture, I wish to say one more thing, discourse is not uniform. It divides into several branches, 
called arguments, and these arguments discourse on different planes of meaning. This division of the discourse into arguments, of which one example could be physics, and another could be art critique, arrests, so to speak, the speed of the discourse. Arguments can stagnate, or they can exhaust themselves. This stagnation relates to the predication of common names toward other common names. This problem will be the theme of a future lecture. On the other side, the slope of the discourse is not uniform. It has contrary movements, which are called reflexive. These movements of thought predicate toward the proper names from the common name. These reflexive movements, roughly called philosophy, will also be considered later. I give you these provisos in order to delineate the terrain of the discussion that will follow this lecture. 4. The Multiplicity of Languages This course has been forced toward a digression due to the arguments that have been formulated in relation to the theory of knowledge. Therefore, I shall dedicate this lecture to this digression. It is becoming obvious that the test of our theory of knowledge will be a yet-to-be-formulated theory of translation. This theory should explicate two opposing facts, it should explain why translations are possible, by giving a special meaning to the term a translation, and it should explain why translations are impossible, by giving a different meaning to the same term. Last Friday, Professor Hegenberg gave an example of the first case, it is possible to translate from two-dimensional geometry to three-dimensional geometry. I can now give an example of the second case, it is impossible to translate from two-dimensional geometry to the language of mysticism. If we are to give credit to traditional philosophy, including the neopositivists, then the three languages being discussed, two-dimensional geometry, three-dimensional geometry, and mysticism, all mean something, that is, reality. The phrases of both geometries as well as the phrases of mysticism are true, according to this philosophy, if and when they mirror a situation of reality. However, I shall seek to prove that the phrases of two-dimensional geometry are impossible to translate into the phrases of mysticism. In one way or another, either, one, the language of geometry is meaningful and the language of mysticism is not, or the language of mysticism is meaningful and the language of geometry is not, or even, they are both meaningless. Or, two, both languages are meaningful, but the impossibility of translation between them proves that their meaning does not reside in a mirroring of something that is common to both. It is obvious that we cannot condemn one of these languages, or both, to a lack of meaning. It is, therefore, the second alternative that must be explained by a theory of translation, which we shall seek to elaborate today. A preliminary consideration becomes desirable, the illustrations that I have provided exemplify the type that I shall call the layers of language. Two-dimensional and three-dimensional geometry, as well as mysticism, are layers of a natural language, for example, of Portuguese. I shall call translations between layers vertical translations. There are natural languages such as Portuguese and Swahili. We can imagine translation of a mystical phrase from Portuguese to Swahili. 
I shall call this type of translation horizontal translation. I shall consider the natural languages as the starting point for this argument without examining, in the present context, their problematic naturalness. I shall discuss only the languages of the fusional type, and I shall consider the possibility of translation between languages of a different structure at a later date. To radically simplify, fusional languages are characterized by the following structure, they consist of words. These words allow themselves to be considered within or without phrases. When considered from without the phrase, these words allow inflection. I shall consider only two types of inflection, declension and conjugation. Declension is the inflection of words of the type substantive or similar words. Conjugation is the inflection of words of the type verb. There are inflections that transform words of one type into another. These, I may consider later. Declension is responsible for that aspect of our external world that we call space, and conjugation for that aspect that we call time. Languages of another structure cannot result in worlds that have aspects of space and time within our meaning of these terms. Words can also be considered within the context of the phrase. From this point of view, the problems of subject, predicate, object, etc., and the problems of indication, interrogation, imperative, etc., will emerge, which I shall consider later if I have time. Languages of our type present themselves, if seen from without, in two ways, as sounds and as drawings. Spoken and Written Language a brief consideration of the drawings will reveal that they are symbols of sounds, with a few exceptions, for example, numbers. However, systems of symbols that do not symbolize the sounds of spoken language, such as for example, symbolic logic or musical notation, have been developed in the course of the discourse. The systems of symbols that represent the sounds of spoken language, the alphabets, are the result of the effort to translate the meaning of spoken language onto the two dimensions of the plane. The systems of symbols that do not represent the sounds of spoken language are the result of the effort to translate the structure of spoken language onto the two dimensions of the plane. Spoken language serves as the referential system for all of these systems, hence, they are all derived. These efforts of translation are crowned by considerable, albeit limited, success. The alphabets translate the meaning of spoken language, but not every meaning. Mathematics and musical notation translate the structure of spoken language, but not every structure. This is a problem that we will deal with, in detail, in the future. It would be a mistake to call the symbols of mathematics or logic ideograms. The ideograms of the written languages of the East are independent from spoken language, for example, they have far greater autonomy than algebraic symbols. It is possible that, historically, some ideograms emerged through an effort to translate spoken language. Others emerged from a pictorial effort, that is, from an inarticulate gesture. However, the writing system of the East is an autonomous whole, and structurally it is entirely different from our type of languages. This is, 
therefore, the structure of our languages, albeit radically simplified. My theory of translation affirms that, given such fundamental structural identity, translations are possible between languages of our type. According to my theory, translation consists of the adequation of a phrase, let us say a Portuguese one, to another phrase, let us say an Arab one, in the following manner, first we analyze the Portuguese phrase, both at the phrase level, and at the word level. Afterwards we shall choose Arab phrases of a similar structure, and Arab words of a similar type. The result, which will be an Arab phrase that consists of Arab words, we shall call the translation of a Portuguese phrase. It is obvious that the new phrase will not be perfectly equivalent to the original one, since there will not be a point-by-point -point correspondence. The situation of reality that the Arab phrase will establish will not be identical to the situation of reality established by the Portuguese phrase. Both realities will be different, and in this sense I can say that translation is impossible. But they will be structurally similar, and in this sense I can say that translation is possible. Let us consider, for a moment, why both situations of reality will be different. I shall give two examples. First example, the conjugation of the Indo-Germanic verb realizes time by articulating it in the past, present, and future. The conjugation of the Semitic verb realizes time by articulating it in the past and future. In the Semitic reality, the present is not time. If I translate the Portuguese phrase Iufelo, I speak to the Hebrew phrase Troni Oma, the situation of reality will have been entirely changed. The situation of Iufelo is dynamic because it involves time. The situation of Roni Oma, literally I speaker, is static because it does not involve time. However, this is, nonetheless, a translation, because the structure of the Portuguese phrase is Iuso Falado, I am a speaker, which approximately corresponds to the structure of the Hebrew phrase, a language that does not have the verb to be, and, therefore, does not allow the translation of the Portuguese word so, I am. Second example, consider the following group of words, Acosa do Livro, the book's house. Due to declension, this group establishes a relation between two names, which is the nucleus of a situation of reality. Acosa, house, is nominative, do livro, the books, is genitive, and a relation of the type of property therefore characterizes the situation. The house is a property of the book. It implies the situation, the book has a house. Consider now a translation to Hebrew, Bejt Hesfer. What is being declined now is the first name, Bejt, house. Our nominative and genitive categories are not applicable to the situation of reality that is emerging. Nevertheless, this is an approximately legitimate translation due to our analysis, which resulted in, the book has a house. It is true that Hebrew does not know verbs like to have and to be and does not know the present. Therefore, the phrase the book has a house is untranslatable. However, 
Hebrew has a dative that is very similar to ours. I can, thus, construct the Hebrew phrase, Bajit Lysfer, literally a house to book, and I can, very laboriously, adequate the Portuguese verb, to, to have, to this dative, for example, the house belongs to the book. I can affirm, therefore, that the translation of the book's house to Bajit Lysfer is approximately correct. But I shall have a surprise. Bajit Lysfer, which I have now so laboriously discovered to be at the book's house it means a scholar school. And this discovery of mine will be fatidic to my belief in a situation of reality beyond languages. There is no school as such, which both languages seek to articulate, and our example proves it existentially. The most we can say is the following, within the context of the world created by the Hebrew language the words Bejt Hesfer occupy an approximately corresponding place to the one occupied by the word Eskola, that is, a place of contemplation and odium, Sko, within the context of the world created by the Portuguese language. Everything I have just said refers to that type of translation that I called a horizontal in the introduction to the problem. The phrases that we have considered until now participate, approximately, on the same linguistic layer, which I have denominated by the term conversation, and this will be from now on, a technical term. I shall now define the layer of arguments that converse verses. I shall define a verse as a phrase that predicates an original proper name, and I shall define the linguistic layer, in which verses occur, as poetry. These are definitions formulated ad hoc, and I ask that you accept them, therefore, without comprehending the ends to which I appeal to these terms. Everything that we have discussed up until now refers to the translation of Portuguese conversational phrases to Hebrew conversational phrases, therefore, to horizontal translation. Thus, I shall formulate my theory of this type of translation as follows, Horizontal translations are mutual adequations between two structures of languages from corresponding layers. Translations will be more successful according to how similar the structures are, and according to how lacking in meaning they are. I believe that my definition is now plausible in relation to the similarity of structures. Now I shall deal with the poverty of meaning. In previous expositions, I define discourse as the progressive exhaustion of meaning through the predication of names. The process starts through the predication of proper names, whose meaning is infinite. Proper names appear in the discourse through an activity I have denominated as to call, but now I am going to change this term. I shall say that this activity of calling is the activity of poetry. Phrases that predicate new proper names produced by poetry are verses. Verses constitute the poetic layer of language. The conversational layer is the result of an effort of vertical translation, it consists of verses translated into prose. Through this translation, proper names are translated into common names, and the dense and implicit structure of the verse is loosened and explicated. It is obvious that this is a progressive translation. The poetic quality of the verse is progressively prosified by the conversation in course. The conversational layer of language may, therefore, 
be stratified into sublayers according to the degree of prosification reached. The sublayer, from which our examples of horizontal translation were extracted, is relatively underdeveloped. It is placed relatively close to the layer of poetry. This is the reason for the relative difficulty of translating from Portuguese to Hebrew within the sublayer. If the examples had been taken from a more developed and more prosaic layer, for example from that conversation called chemistry, the difficulties in translation would have been much smaller. I imagine that the translation of the Portuguese phrase Uma molecular de sal de cozinha consiste am etimo de sodio e outro de cloro, one molecule of table salt consists of one atom of sodium and another of chloride, would not have been so difficult. At a more advanced layer, for example the layer of phrases such as no plus CL equals NACL, the difficulty in translation would be minimal and would consist only in the substitution of the Latin alphabet by the Hebrew one. Finally, we would have arrived at the purely formal layer of symbolic logic and there would not be any difficulty in translation because any translation would disappear on this layer. Formal logic is the articulation of the common structure of Portuguese and Hebrew, and on this layer, which is exempt of meaning, both languages are confused with each other. If analyzed, horizontal translation would reveal itself as a complicated case of successive vertical translations. The Portuguese phrase to be translated to Hebrew is translated vertically to the layer of symbolic logic and retranslated from there to the corresponding Hebrew conversational layer. The speed with which we execute translations, in practice, conceals and veils the complexity of this process. In the vertical translation to a formal layer, we progressively strip the phrase of its meaning and explicate its structure. In the retranslation to the conversational layer, we cover the phrase again with meaning, but a meaning that is obviously slightly different from the first. Very prosaic phrases, that is, relatively poor in meaning and closer to the formal layer, are easily translated because the path to be followed is relatively direct. Phrases that are full of meaning, such as verses, are untranslatable, even between languages with very similar structures, because the path is too long. This is the fact which my definition of horizontal translation articulates. Before considering vertical translations, I want to answer an objection formulated by our young friend, three that is, the one that had the translatability of Portuguese to Andamanese as a theme. If my argumentation is valid, it is obvious that we can translate from Portuguese to Andamanese as long as we find a formal fundament common to both languages. I shall disconsider the fact that, even if this common fundament is found, the translation will be very vague, given that, for example, declension and conjugation do not exist in the Andamanese language, and that therefore, neither space nor time exist in Andamanese, according to our meaning of these terms. However, here is a purely formal aspect of the problem, in our symbolic logic, if A equals B is true, then a B is not true. But I know, from my knowledge of Andamanese, that a dancer can simultaneously be a sweet potato and not be one. The structure of this language must be, therefore, 
entirely different from mine. Even so, should I discover some common fundament, it would probably be so tenuous that it would make any translation effort laughable and frustrating. I am not saying that these translations are impossible, but they must deviate from the original in an absurd way. I know that Lin Yutang had fits of laughter when presented with translations of Li Taipa done by Ezra Pound, and it is this comic nature of the effort that I have in mind. Now I shall quickly consider vertical translation, of which, horizontal translation is nothing but a complex case. I borrow the example provided by Professor Hegenberg last Friday. I translate vertically from three-dimensional geometry to two-dimensional geometry. The structure of the language of three-dimensional geometry contains, among other logic and formal elements, three Cartesian axes that coordinate points, these three axes are prosified space and derive, in a last analysis, from the declension of names. The language of three-dimensional geometry is a highly prosaic conversation distance from poetry. I shall attempt to prosify this language even further, and I shall eliminate the axes. I shall impoverish the language of geometry with this elimination, because from now on, all the points of which I speak will have only two coordinates, and all of my equations will be square and have only two roots. My new language will be more economical and simpler, and will employ fewer terms. It will not be any less vast than three-dimensional geometry, because the whole of three-dimensional geometry can be projected upon two-dimensional geometry. But it will be less meaningful. The names that I shall employ will be one step further away from the proper names that are predicated in verses. As it is one step further from the fullness of the real situation established by the verse, two-dimensional geometry has, in this sense, less reality than three-dimensional geometry, and, in this sense, three-dimensional space is more real than two-dimensional space. This is, therefore, why I translate vertically, in order to reach a greater economy of terms and less reality. In the end, vertical translation is nothing but a general aspect of the predication of proper names toward common names. Effectively, the language of two-dimensional geometry is, as a whole, a class to which three-dimensional geometry belongs. I shall define, therefore, vertical translation as follows, ascending vertical translation is to vert for the verse toward conversation, and to progressively convert the verse into prose. Descending vertical translation is the attempt to revert the conversation toward the verse and is, therefore, an inverted translation. I shall return to the problem of vertical translation when I discuss verse and poetry. Let us now consider the attempt to translate a phrase from two-dimensional geometry to the language of mysticism. I said that our type of languages could be considered as systems of words organized into phrases, and that these phrases can be classified, for example, as indicative, imperative, interrogative, etc. The verse, in its dense structure, is a synthesis of these diverse forms of phrases. Conversation explicates this dense structure into the forms enumerated above. Two-dimensional geometry verts the verse toward indicative and interrogative forms of phrases by vertical translation. Mysticism, 
if formally analyzed, will be revealed as a conversation that verts the verse toward imperative and interrogative forms of phrases by vertical translation. These are, therefore, two vertical translations of verses that point toward two different horizons of language. The desire to translate two-dimensional geometry to mysticism or vice versa is, therefore, the wish to encompass two different horizons of language. This encompassing cannot be done by the adequation of both structures, and in this sense, translation is not possible. It is possible to adequate geometry to mysticism, but this must be done through a concentric translation that points to the verse from which both conversations originate, therefore, through a kind of vertically descending and concentric translation. This type of convergent translation, whose inverted discourse predicates common names toward the proper name contained in the verse, is called philosophy. As an inverted and reflexive discourse, philosophy seeks to translate every layer of conversation upon itself through its reversion toward the verse. Philosophy can, through this encompassing movement, englobe mysticism and two-dimensional geometry in the form of phrases that predicate common names toward proper names contained in verses. This is philosophy's role as a critique of language. Therefore I reformulate, horizontal translation is the mutual adequation between two corresponding layers of the structures of two languages. And a translation will be all the more successful depending on how similar both structures are and of how poor in meaning each layer is. Horizontal translation is a complex of vertically ascending and descending translations. Ascending vertical translation is the vetting of the verse toward conversation, which progressively converts the verse into prose. Descending vertical translation is the attempt to revert the conversation toward the verse. The sum of ascending translations is the discourse's progress. The sum of descending translations is philosophy. What have I achieved with this theory that I am presenting to you? I have eliminated the pseudo-concept of an extra-linguistic reality from our future argumentation. I do not translate a Portuguese phrase to a Hebrew one because both refer to the same extra-linguistic situation, but because the structures of both languages have similarities. I have eliminated the Wittgensteinian Sackverhalt. As a secondary product of my theory I have managed a plausible explication of the translation process and perhaps the germ for a more adequate translation technique. I have managed to encompass, through my theory of translation, both the progressive aspect and the reflexive aspect of the intellect as the field of languages. And I have managed to formally define this intellectual movement called philosophy. What have I not achieved with my theory? I have not managed to explicate why there are languages of similar and of different structures. I have not managed to explicate how translations from spoken to written language are done. I have not managed to explicate the relation between strictly spoken language and those other languages such as music, dance, etc. And I have not managed to explicate a series of other problems that you will certainly and mercifully point out. However, I still believe that I have made some progress all the same. I have cleared the ground for a future discussion of the consequences of the epistemology that we are discussing. In this sense, 
This lecture was not discourse but excourse, for which I apologize, given my extreme didactic inability.